Notice there in Titus 1 and verse 5 that Paul tells Titus, I left you in Crete to set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. The church has a need to be organized and to be overseen in the way that God intended it to so be done. Paul went preaching across Asia Minor, establishing congregation after a congregation, converting many souls to Christ, but eventually he'd work back through many of those congregations. And he'd go city to city, and in Acts 14, 23, they would appoint elders in the church. There's a necessity. There's a need. There is a privilege in the body of Christ to have an eldership. To have this group of brothers whose love for the Lord is so great that they are willing to take upon their shoulders the responsibility to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a tremendous work. It's a tremendous privilege. It's God's plan. And as a congregation of God's people, it ought to be our desire. And this is what we're going to explore for the next few Sundays. Counting today, we will have three Sundays worth of lessons on the subject of the eldership. The first two, today and next Sunday, will focus primarily upon their qualifications. That's going to bleed a little over into the third Sunday when we're going to talk about some responsibilities, mutual responsibilities between the congregation and its leaders, and speak to some advice from the scriptures as it relates to how men like this ought to be looked for as we look to install an eldership here. But let's begin with this first question, who are elders? And this is a question I actually get at my house with, with my children because they've never been in a congregation with an eldership. They were born here at Peninsula. They've continued to grow up here at Peninsula. And so they don't know what it's like to have Elders and, and so when I talk to them about this and have been preaching about it in days gone by and just discussing it at other congregations, how they have an eldership and, and otherwise, the question comes up, well, well, what are they? What do they do? Who are elders? Especially out of Ada. She's seven. She's growing up enough to be able to comprehend and think about these things. But a seven-year-old is not the only one who might have that question, right? Sometimes if you've never had the privilege of being in a congregation with elders, it's not something perhaps that you've ever gotten to experience then you don't know what to expect. And at the same time, we as a congregation looking to install them need to be reminded, don't we, of what it is that these men represent. And the first thing I want us to understand is that there are three terms that are used to describe the work of the elders. That of being a bishop, that of being a pastor, and that of being an elder. Now, these three terms all relate to the same office. The word translated bishop from episkopos literally just carries the concept of an overseer. It's literally a compound word with the idea of watching over, to take authority and responsibility for. The second word there, pastor, often translated as shepherd, but I include pastor because many like that word in relationship to this and misapply it. But the word pastor, translated from appointment, literally has the concept of shepherding, which gives that sense of guiding, protecting the souls, feeding, nurturing, admonishing, encouraging along the way. And the third term that you find used for this office, this role, is that of presbyteros, elder. It literally just speaks to one who is aged. Now, when you take these three terms together, what we're looking at are those of some age. They have wisdom. They've experienced the Christian life who are willing to take the oversight of the brethren so as to shepherd them, watch over them, guide them, feed them, direct them on their journey to eternity. 
That is fundamentally what the eldership is about. Now, I'm proposing you that these three terms all relate to this same office and in the same place. Well, let's give a little bit of proof for that, shouldn't we? Acts 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul is speaking in that context, if you look at verse 17, to the elders of the church at Ephesus. In fact, Paul is trying to make his way toward Jerusalem, and he doesn't believe that he has time to go all the way inland to Ephesus because the Ephesian port city was actually about seven miles from the city itself. And so he stops there and he calls for the elders of the church to come down and meet him. And so he's speaking to elders and he tells them, verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that term, episkopos. There's that term, bishop. Over which the Holy Spirit has made you bishop. To do what? To shepherd. Some translations there you'll have to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So these who are called elders are given the charge by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, Acts 20, 28 there, to oversee, to bishop, and to shepherd, to pastor the church of God. Now, that's one example. You can turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. And Peter does the exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Paul does over here in Acts chapter 20. Beginning at verse 1, Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So Peter identifies himself as an elder. And he's writing at least this section of this letter to the Christians scattered to the elders. The elders obviously in the varying congregations of the Lord's body throughout the area. And he tells them, verse 2, shepherd, there it is, pastor, from the word appointment here, shepherd the church of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. Bishop, you see again, these three terms all relating to the same individual. The elder, the pastor, the bishop. They are all the same description. Now, here's where we tend to get ourselves in trouble. We tend to think of titles like this as official designations of office, right? Uh, we take it to mean something like the President of the United States, the Speaker of the House. And, and while it certainly designates an office, understand these terms are meant to describe the nature of the office more than they are meant to be official designations for the individuals. Paul's saying if a man desires the office, the position of a bishop, he's saying if a man desires to serve as an overseer, He's describing what they're doing more than trying to prescribe an exact name. And so what we do is we start labeling it. He's an elder. He's a bishop. He's a pastor. And, and we start using it in this formalized way and we lose the meaning of those words because now it becomes an office more than it becomes a responsibility. But the way that Paul is using these words, the way that Peter is using these words to describe this work in the church is not as much about an office with a title as it is about a work with a responsibility. And so these men, this idea of an eldership, this group of men, and I keep emphasizing plurality, you'll see why in a moment. They are men of wisdom who love the Lord enough to take the responsibility to watch over his flock, shepherding them into eternity. That is the work that they are engaged in. Now, again, these same workers, no matter where you see this, whether you're in Ephesians 4 with pastor, or you're in Acts 28 with elder, or you're over in 1 Peter chapter 5 with shepherd, or a variety of the terms, we're talking about the same office. In fact, one of the texts we'll look at a little bit later in Titus 1, verse 5 and verse 7, Paul will use the term bishop or overseer and the term elder interchangeably. Speaking of the exact same list of qualifications for the exact same man, he will interchange them within that very 
same context of the qualification. So it helps us to see how true it is. So this is the work that these men do. And it's the same workers, whether it's an elder, a bishop, or a pastor. But they are always, 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 one more time, always in a plurality. Now, before we study all the qualifications, we've got to grasp this, don't we? Who we're really talking about, what we're really talking about. Because the qualifications are somewhat meaningless if we don't understand the office, the, the place, the work, the responsibility to which these men are being chosen, in which they are being placed. Now, in Acts 20, verse 17, he called for the elders of the church at Ephesus. That's a text we already referenced, already looked at. But go now to Acts chapter 14 at verse 23. Now, this is a text that I referenced a little bit earlier, but look at Acts chapter 14 at verse 23. You see, as Paul is journeying, in a sense, back, Beginning at verse 21, you can read, And when they preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So, when they had appointed elders in every church. You notice that language? They didn't say after they appointed elders in churches. Then we might be left to wonder, well, is it one? Is it many in each congregation? How exactly should we understand that? How exactly should we apply it? That's not the language that Luke uses, is it? He's very specific here. And keep in mind, Luke is writing by inspiration of God, isn't he? This isn't just Luke reporting for the sake of Luke. He's writing under the hand of God. He is emphasizing here. So when they had appointed elders in every church, elders in every church, the plurality, the qualifications are given individually. Each man must individually meet these qualifications. It's not that as a group they fulfill all of them. It's that as each individual in the group they fulfill them. But there must be a group. There must be more than one in every church. There has to be a plurality. Now, some would say ideally you'd have three, right? You'd have a, a breaking vote to break the tie. That, that's not necessary. The, the biblical word usage is plural. Anything more than one would account for the plurality, right? And so two is sufficient. And quite frankly, if you have an eldership of three that finds himself all the time voting two to one, two to one, two to one, or one to two, you, you probably have big problems with that eldership. And something needs to be reevaluated. Two is sufficient. Two meets the qualifications that God gives. Now, would more be good? Absolutely. You know, if a congregation can have many men who are qualified, who can work together and share the burden and the work of overseeing the congregation, that is only to the blessing of the church. That is only to the blessing of that congregation. But it does have to be at least two. And so when you think that this work includes the, the title of pastor or shepherd, then here comes a, a problem that we often see around us. And it's something I want to just quickly note here. I know it's not the focus of the lesson, but, but at least should, should mention here is that the concept of so much of, of the denominational, of the religious world around us, of having one guy who serves as the pastor and basically dictates the affairs of the whole congregation and is also the preacher. Not the biblical concept. Not at all. A pastor is an elder, is a bishop. And in Acts 14.23, we find them in plurality. But, but it's not just Acts 14.23. It's not just Acts 14.23. Remember Titus 1 and verse 5, which we read as part of the scripture reading? That he should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders. Again, the plural was used. And the one occasion outside of Acts 20, the other occasion where we actually see the eldership of a congregation addressed, it is also in plurality. Look with me, if you will, at Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, verse 1. Bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and 
deacons. So, so think about what we've established for just a moment. That the two times the need to appoint is referenced, or the appointing is being done, it is always spoken as plural for each church. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Titus chapter 1, and verse 5. The two times where we see congregations in existence, serving and worshiping God with elderships in place, and then those elders are specifically referenced, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Philippians chapter 1, and verse 1, both have a plurality in place. So here's the, the understanding that we've got to have out of this section as it relates to God's word and his truth. You never, ever, ever see a congregation of the Lord's people in the New Testament under single man rule and authority. It simply does not happen. Now, it would eventually develop at the close of the apostles' lifetime. As John goes his way and the church starts to begin, well, as, as a lot of things do, to do its own thing, yes, single man rule will enter into the equation historically, but not in the lifetime of the apostles, not in the teaching of the word of God. And so we need to be clear in our understanding that an eldership is two or more men fulfilling the responsibilities of those words that describe them, elder, bishop, pastor, for the good of the body of Christ. Which leads me to make this one last point about who these men are. And I would almost argue, it'd be very tempted, to submit to you that this is the most important point of this whole first thought that we're exploring. Who are elders? They are under shepherds. Now, the reason why this is important is because in the context of Scripture, we understand mankind as a whole to struggle with pride and power and authority. We understand that, that men placed in a position of authority can have a temptation to look at themselves at a place above what they ought to. You can see it in the pages of the Old Testament, can't you? With men thinking they have authority that is not theirs to have a one king that comes to mind right away for me is Saul the first. Think about what happens when he gets jealous over David and how he pursues him and pursues him and pursues him foolishly. We talked about Solomon last week. I referenced very casually that evening in our discussion his son Rehoboam. And then, of course, on the other side of Rehoboam, it's going to be Jeroboam as well. And, and both of those men, there's pride. They don't want to lose what they have. And, and so they become lifted up with it. And, well, the consequences are severe, aren't they? Nebuchadnezzar is a name that comes to mind, isn't it? If you're a student of the, of the scriptures, or even in the New Testament, you can come to one like Herod the Great, or even Pilate himself. You see, men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, they realize something about themselves, that it's not about them, that the work that they do, it's not to their glory. It's not for their pride. It's for the glory of the chief shepherd. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, returning there, when Peter writes to these elders, and I've highlighted several sections here on the screen, but I'm going to read the entire text for you. The elders who are among you, I exhort, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not, being, not as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Peter says, my brothers, you who are elders in the Lord's body, he says, don't lord it over the flock. Don't rule over it as though you are king and they are your subjects. Be an example to them. Serve them. Shepherd them. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you see, you're a shepherd, but when the chief shepherd appears, now they would have gotten that right away. If I'm a shepherd and he's the chief shepherd, where's that place me? Well, submissive to him, right? Under his authority. I, I serve at his behest, at his will for him. Peter says, when that chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And so to the brothers who, who will be considered in this process, I hope you remember this last verse in particular. Because the work of being an elder is not an easy work. My, is it rewarding in eternal terms. And even here and now, it's rewarding, but it's not easy. But the chief shepherd, he has an eternal reward for those who serve well for him. Who are these men? They're men who don't crave power and authority and dominion. They're fundamentally men who just serve their Savior and their brethren. That's what Peter helps us to understand. So when you begin to look at the qualifications, I know we won't get too deep into them today. Don't worry, we don't have the rest of the qualifications to study. One of the first things that comes to attention in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Peter 5 too is his desire. When you look at 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now you might be tempted, looking there in, in your English translation, seeing the word desire appear twice, to think this is the same word, but it actually is not. Paul uses two different words here, both of which can be translated as desire, appropriately so, but which carry different senses. The first word here translated as desire, if a man desires the position of a bishop, this word literally carries the idea of stretching toward. And so he says, if a man is stretching toward this position, if a man sees this opportunity to serve and he is stretching himself, he is working himself, he is qualifying himself, we might say, to fulfill the role, he says, well, he desires a good work. If a man is pursuing this, he desires a good work. Now, the second term here translated as desire is the concept of one-mindedness of having his mind set on doing this work. So the first speaks to his stretching toward it. The second speaks to his mind being set upon it. Paul says, this man who's stretching toward this, his mind is set on a good thing. Now this tells us right away that something these men must possess is a willingness, a desire, a stretching toward it, a mindedness toward it. And we can understand why that would be necessary, can't we? You ever worked alongside somebody who didn't want to do their job? You ever, you ever had a co-worker like that in your lifetime? They make life miserable, don't they? They're always complaining, aren't they? You know, the, the, the office is too hot, the office is too cold, the work is too long, the work is too easy, the work is too hard, the work is too short. I mean, there's always something to complain and fuss about, right? Because they don't want to be there. And when you don't want to be somewhere, when you don't really take pleasure in what you're doing, then it can feel like a bit of monotonous boredom that's just not worth even doing. And in that well, that tends to reflect, doesn't it, in the kind and quality of work that that individual does. And it tends to make the life of those around them, right, the co-worker, pretty miserable. And so you'll hear people say, I would rather have someone who loves the work with less skill than someone who hates that work with all the skill. <laughs> rather have someone with less skill, but who loves it, because they'll try. The one who hates it, but has a skill, they're not going to try. They're going to mail it in, right? Well, well. Take that and just think about it practically with regards to speaking of the eldership. Do we believe it would be to the benefit of the congregation to have a man serving as an overseer and shepherd of our souls who doesn't want to do the work, who's not interested in it, who doesn't have a desire for it? How do we think that's going to end? Practically speaking, we understand how it will end, don't we? Because we've experienced this in our lives. We've seen it over and over again. We've been that person probably at some point in our life doing something we didn't want to do. 
Now, I pray if you were a Christian, you had the right kind of attitude and heart about it, right? But in relationship to an elder, to the shepherding of souls, to the difficult moments and difficult decisions that have to be, if a man doesn't want the work, he's not going to be engaged. He's not going to care. He's not going to do it. And so Paul speaks right away to this desire that a man, if he has it, this is a good thing. This ought to be part of it. Uh, sometimes we speak about ambition. There's a couple different kinds of ambition, right? There's a kind that is ambitious for the things of God, and there's a kind that's kind of ambitious for things of, of wealth itself. This is on that first spectrum. A man who is ambitious for the things of God. He doesn't want power for the sake of power. He wants to do a good work. He wants to do a good work. And Peter only adds to that, doesn't he, in verse 2, which we read a moment ago, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. This desire, there has to be a willingness. There has to be a yes, I'm willing to do this work, not by compulsion. One of the worst things you can have is a situation where maybe a congregation is looking to have elders like us, and you only have a couple of brothers who are qualified. And one looks at the situation and says, I really don't want to do it, but if no one else will, I guess it's better to have one than not. Well, if he's serving by compulsion, if he feels like he has no other choice but to so do it, he feels like his arm's kind of been twisted by the church, right? That's no good at all. That's no good at all. Peter says there has to be a willingness here. There, there can't be a forced cause behind this. Now, Peter goes on to explain part of that can be for dishonest gain. A man, man can, can think he's going to get into this for, to gain something out of it. But he needs to have a willing spirit and a willing attitude. And if they are shepherds serving under the chief shepherd, then maybe the example we should go to is the example of Christ himself, right? And the willingness that he had to go to the cross. I'm reminded of how often we see Jesus turning his face to Jerusalem, knowing what is ahead of him, but still stepping right toward the cross. A willingness to serve. Yes, knowing the challenge. Yes, knowing the work. Yes, knowing what is ahead of them to a degree, but a willingness to set the face and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for my brethren. A willingness like unto the chief shepherd. Don't underestimate the necessity of desire and willingness. Don't underestimate. That's why as we go through the process, there are some men who, who have said, we don't believe we are where we want to be to do this work. I, I don't know that I'm ready to take on this work. And while we might look at them and, and perhaps think, they are qualified or not. We can't, we can't go there. We can't go. And I'm thankful for men who have the spiritual wherewithal to tell us, I'm not there. I'm not ready to take on this work. It's better to know that up front than after the fact, isn't it? It's better to know what you're buying, so to speak, when you're pulling it off the lot. Than to get off the lot, as an individual did down here in Norfolk the other day, they were promised the vehicle only had 63,000 miles on it and found out it was quite a few more when they got it off the lot. We need men who up front, I'm willing, I'm willing. I'm ready. Desire, willingness. But alongside the desire and the willingness, alongside this understanding of what they are and what they're doing, there has to be an understanding that this needs to be a man of some experience. Now, understand, I'm, I'm kind of looking at these qualifications from the periphery this day. I'm going to be digging into the ones that really deal with character next Sunday. I kind of want to begin on the outside and, and work our way in. When we speak about experience there in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, there's a term here, not a novice. And, and the English Standard Version translates it, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, Peter warned about lording over God's heritage as being lords over it. Well, that very closely ties in here to what Paul warns about in Verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. The, the risk of pride. Now, a, a, an eldership together, they ought to pray together, study together, encourage one another in humility, and in continuing to walk in that path. But 
A man who comes into the eldership full of pride isn't going to all of a sudden become humble because he because he's given the responsibility of leading. That's not how it works, is it? You know, ladies, if there's a man in your friend's life who's not faithful to her and she thinks, well, once we finally put the rings on it, he'll all of a sudden be faithful. That ain't happening. That's not how it works, is it? And so Paul says to Timothy, this man cannot be a novice. He can't be a new convert. The word that, that is translated here as novice or new convert is a, an agricultural term, actually, that speaks to the idea of a seedling just freshly germinating. It says we can't have someone who, so to speak, still wet behind the ears from the back. We've got to have a man of some experience because the risk is pride. The risk is pride. You see this sometimes in sports, don't you? The young hotshot who's been told since he was four or five years old that he's the next Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods. And on pure skill, he gets to the professional league, but nobody wants to play with him. Every team he's on, the locker room's a mess. He just can't get along with anybody because he already thinks he's better than everybody else. We've seen that, haven't we? Paul says, we can't have that. A man who would be a bishop can't be a man who is young in the faith. He has to have had some age and time to mature and grow in Christ. Now, the word elder, by definition, implies age. And, and so Paul, you've got to wonder, is an inserting this here is kind of a secondary bit of information. It's not just about age, but it's about wisdom in Christ. It's about wisdom in Christ as well. You might have an individual who's a little bit older, obeyed the gospel, and, and they seem like a great man, and they start preaching, and they start teaching, and they start doing a lot of things in the kingdom, and the congregation might be tempted to look at that individual and say, hey, look, man, th th there's someone right there who can do this work, who can serve, who can walk. Paul says, step back a moment. People need time to mature and grow in Christ. And so an elder can't be young in the faith. They need to have lived a little while. And those of us who have been Christians for any length of time, even a few years, you can testify to it, can't you? That the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you learn about yourself. And the more you see your own flaws, the more you can grow to be humble before him and before your brethren. But sometimes that takes a little while, doesn't it? So when we talk about elders, we have to remember these are men of age and wisdom who are willing to take the responsibility of oversight, watching over our soul, shepherding us toward eternity. These are men who look at this work and say, I'm willing, I desire it, I will serve my Lord in this way, I will serve my brethren in this way. These are men who have some years under their belt. These are men who have fought the devil, who have had to don that armor of God and go out into the battlefield and face him in the power of Christ. These are men of God. Now, I'm going to make a statement that I'm going to make again each of the next couple Sundays. An elder is a man of God, not a perfect. When we begin to look at the character qualifications, especially that word blameless, it can be tempting for us to look at an individual and say, well, they're not perfect. There's this little thing or that little thing. And well, if you're lo looking for perfect men, look up into the skies of heaven because there is only one and he's sitting at the right hand of his father. But if we're looking for men of God, who are seeking to be complete in Christ, who are living lives of submission and sacrifice, of love and service and fidelity, well, then we'll be right looking in the right place. Not an office, lest he fall into impatient snare of the devil. A study of the eldership. We have ahead of us more digging, more exposing of what Paul would have us to have. But this is a start. To understand who it is that we're talking about. To understand that he's got to want it. Understand he has to be a man who has some years in the trenches of the Savior. Now, next Sunday, we'll dig into the, his character. We'll dig into his ability to teach. We're, we're going to talk about that. 
talking about who he really is. But this begins to frame the outline, doesn't it, of what we're looking for. And we'll color it in, Lord willing, next Sunday. Now, I encourage you to pray. I've encouraged it from the announcements. I've encouraged it in my emails. And now, at the close of the sermon, I'm going to encourage you again to be praying for all of us, for all who are involved, because we are taking on a work for the blessing of God, for the work of His kingdom. And we should not dare to presume to seek to do the work of God without the blessing of God. His people have never fared well when they've left the blessing of the Lord behind. And so pray diligently for what we are undertaking, that it will be to God's glory no matter what comes of it, no matter what comes. And I hope if you're here with us this morning and and you're visiting, and maybe you're not a member of the church of our Lord, that maybe this talk of an eldership and how we don't have a single pastor and all this stuff is is new to you, I hope that you'll take one thing away, that we are a people who believe in a thus saith the Lord. That whether we're talking about how we organize ourselves, how we worship, how we serve, we want to know what our Lord has shown us in His Scripture, in His Word to do. And if that's something you're not familiar with, then we invite you to study with us, to ask questions. We encourage it, we invite it, we love it. Because when we're asking questions of the Scripture, we know one thing with certainty. God has an answer. God has an answer. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you want to know more about our Lord, about His church, we invite you to let us know. If you're here this morning and you've been studying the Scripture, you've come to understand that that you're not saved, that you're not part of the Lord's body, that you don't have the remission of sins, then this morning, put the Lord on in baptism. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Do that, Acts 2.38. Jesus said it, believe and be baptized. Mark 16 and verse 16. That is what you need to do this morning. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, again, we measure our life and our work by the Scriptures, don't we? And so if your life right now before the Lord isn't where it ought to be in accord with the Word of God, then this is an opportunity for you to to acknowledge that and to seek the help of the people of God ought to always do the things of God God's way. And so whether it's salvation, Christian living, or how the church itself operates, we encourage you to go to the Scriptures. Inspired Word of God.